Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Are we witnessing a new crisis in the American order? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, and this is the very last day. You can pick up my newest class, How the Supreme Court Screwed Up America for 99 bucks. You got to use the coupon code SCOTUS, S C O T U S, at checkout. Get it for $99. But November 8th, 2023 is the last day you're ever going to get it for $99. So make sure you go out and do that. Pick it up now because it is an awesome deal and it's an awesome class. If you're on my email list, you're also going to get some great coupons coming up very shortly for Black Friday at McClanahan Academy. So purchasing classes there keeps this podcast free of charge. You also get awesome content. If you like the podcast, you'll love McClanahan Academy. You can also support the show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it a five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm if you're watching there. And, of course, send me those show requests. And if you want to support the show financially, also click on the Super Thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. Or click on the Shop tab or Support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Go to Spotify for podcasts or subscribe there. All kinds of great ways to support this show, and I do appreciate all of it. I do it for you, right? So uh, I, I want to talk about an interesting article that appeared at American Greatness. Now, American Greatness is a very interesting website. In fact, I would say that at times, American Greatness is perhaps uh, one of the only websites that allows for a variety of opinions. Now, American Greatness is run by the West Coast Straussians. And the West Coast Straussians, I think, are very conflicted right now. They don't really know what to do about some things. And I'll, and I'll give some examples. Michael Anton and the West Coast Straussians, all of them, Glenn Elmers, I mean, take your pick on these West Coast Straussians. They are Lincolnites. And Lincolnites have had a hard time accepting that the South is the true anchor of American conservatism. They want to point back to Abraham Lincoln. This goes back to Harry Jaffa and his contention that equality was conservative. That was an American conservative principle. Now, again, if you accept that position, what you've ultimately done is undermine your whole, the whole basis of American conservatism because... Uh, when you say equality is conservative, I mean, look, Jaffa wasn't meaning equality of condition. He wasn't looking at it in a way of, you know, the, the Marxists. 
It was essentially equality under the law, this idea of equality of citizens, the same type of equality that you might find in the Magna Carta. And I get it. But as soon as you adopt this position that equality is conservative, you've now opened up a minefield because the left will run with it. And you don't have the ability to say, we're going to stop with this or this is what this means. Now, you can try to persuade people of that. But that's not really what Lincoln was even doing in 1863. It's not what the Republicans were doing in the 1850s. They weren't doing any of that. Their version of equality was more in line with what the left would say equality is today. So if you're going to go with the Lincolnian position of America, you are bound to face a real serious problem. And that is, Lincoln is the man for the left. The Republican Party is the party of the left. Southerners pointed this out quite effectively after the war was over. Look, northern conservatives really aren't that conservative. They're just adopting the discarded talking points of the left and saying these are now conservative positions. And the West Coast Straussians have done that very thing because after the war was over, conservatives really were emasculated. Southern conservatives. This is why Russell Kirk called this period uh, you know, kind of the conservatism in decline or conservatism frustrated more accurately. Conservatism frustrated in his conservative mind. But he did point to a couple of people that would be more accurately the founders of American conservatism. Now, Kirk really liked the Adams family. He liked John Adams. He liked Henry Adams. He liked Charles Francis Adams. He liked the Adams family. And look, the Adams were interesting. You know, you had um, the Adams, particularly after the war, were very receptive to this idea of propping up Southern conservatism. They thought it was essential to have a real American conservative brand, so to speak. And they certainly weren't in favor of punishing ex-Confederates. You also had, of course, in that group that... Kirk would say these are the important conservatives, John Randolph of Roanoke and John C. Calhoun. Now, Calhoun is the problem for the West Coast Straussians because they have made it their mission to say that John C. Calhoun is not an American conservative. John C. Calhoun is a progressive Democrat. They've gone on record saying these things. In fact, I think even in Anton's book, he has an entire chapter dedicated to to warning Southerners to stay away from John C. Calhoun. That is the most destructive message you can have for American conservatives. And I'll be kind about what else I could say about that. But it's destructive. John C. Calhoun is, in so many ways, the most important American conservative. Because Calhoun could see what was happening in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, and he was... Or, he dies in 1850. But of course, he writes his disquisition and discourse, and then they're published right after his death in 1850. He could see what was coming. He understood the game. And the game is exactly what we have today. In fact, Calhoun would not blame the presidency for the problems in American politics. He would blame the Congress. He would say the Congress has punted all of its responsibility all the time. This is why in 1837, in the infamous Positive Good speech, he said, look, Congress can do whatever it wants. 
Congress can pass legislation right now abolishing slavery if we wanted to. We could come up with a way to make it constitutional. We've done that for tariffs. We've done that for federally funded internal improvements. We've done it for a national bank. What makes you think we can't come up with some type of uh, way to make abolishing slavery in the United States constitutional? But we can't. We won't do it. So in that way, all of this, uh, you know, bellowing about the evil of slavery, nobody's really committed to it. That was his point. And if it is an evil, and he said if it is an evil, we should abolish it right now. We shouldn't allow this thing to exist another day in America. If it really is an evil. It has to go away. Calhoun was never an abstractionist. He always looked at things as a practical man. That's why he said he's a conservative. And because he's conservative, he's a states' rights man. There's a lot of nuance to John C. Calhoun. And, and he understood what the Constitution and what American politics was going to do. It was always going to go for more power. The Constitution was going to be no block, no obstacle to the continued growth of federal power because those in power would continually violate the Constitution. Those out of power would say, you know, we, we need to follow this Constitution thing. But once they're in power, they would ignore it. This is why he had the concurrent majority. This is why he said that we need to protect minorities in America, even singular minorities, from abuse from the majority. Why is it that we look at American politics and we think a majority is just 50, if you have 101 people, 51 out of 101 people. You're plundering 50 people at that point. That's not real effective government. And when you nationalize everything in America, this is also Calhoun's warning, when you nationalize everything, you create fundamental problems. All of the stuff that we're looking at today that are now you know, being so viciously fought over are really not even national issues. Now, when you talk about foreign policy, that's a big one. Foreign policy was something that was a national issue. We really should have a major national, quote-unquote, conversation on American foreign policy. What direction do we want to go in? Are we looking in American foreign policy for you know, do we want to support X country or Y country, or do we want to be non-interventionists? I mean, what do we want to do? I, and I think that's an important discussion to have across the United States. But all these other issues, the culture war issues, are really local and state issues. That's that's what they always have been, and that's how the Constitution was sold. So I say all that to say the West Coast Straussians, I think, are really conflicted. They need to accept that their position on Lincoln has been wrong from the beginning and that they open the door to the leftist insanity when they accept Lincoln. If they would do that, if they would do that, there would be a real reunification in American conservatism. We could all get in line and say, okay, Lincoln bad, let's move forward with real American conservative heroes and we can have a unified message. They won't do it because they think by embracing someone like Calhoun or uh, John Randolph of Roanoke, you run into the minefield, in their mind, the minefield of slavery, which that's going to be there anyways. Look, the left, even if you say Lincoln's our guy, they're going to call you all these bad names. But that's, that's their game now. And it, it's, it's losing its punch, sort of, but this, as this piece illustrates, not as much as I would hope. And this piece was written by a doctoral candidate, I think at Hillsdale College, his name is Josiah Lippincott. And while I agree with him, he actually makes a mistake in this piece. And it's something the West Coast Straussians make all the time. 
and you ha- and the Hillsdale people, you have to be Larry Arn at Hillsdale. He's another West Coast Straussian. You have to be careful with this. You cannot straddle the fence here. Because if the cause was wrong, then the entire thing is wrong and the left again gains ascendancy. So let me let me get to the piece. The title is The Meltdown of the Old Order Foretells, I'm sorry, a new crisis. He says, this week, the left-wing organization Swords into Plowshares began the process of melting down the statue of Robert E. Lee that stood in Charlottesville, Virginia. The images from the ordeal contained deep spiritual significance. A profound sense of foreboding washed over my heart when I saw the bronze face of the southern hero glowing red-hot moments before annihilation. What the leftists did to the statue of Lee is a vision of what they want to do to the rest of the country. The destruction of a nation's symbols, the elimination of the reminders of its past, is a key part of the process of the destruction of a nation and its people. Now, again, the language here is important. The United States never has been a nation. It still isn't a nation. And this is clear in all the fracturing that's going on. We have a federal republic. And if these issues were left to the states, now you could say, well, McClanahan, this is going on at the state level. The state of Virginia did this. I know. I know because you have spineless losers in Virginia government, including the governor himself, who has all pre- all these presidential ambitions, and he won't stand up to this stuff. Look, Glenn Youngkin could have stopped all of this, every single bit of it. In fact, when you look at the Arlington Monument and the potential for that removal, Youngkin didn't even try to block it. He just said, well, look, if you're going to take it down, give it to us so that they can melt it down. He could have blocked that whole thing. No, no, we're not letting you take it down. But you see, Youngkin is of the impression that the majority of Americans would be against him for doing that. What he doesn't realize is the majority of Americans would be in favor of leaving that monument where it is, just like all the other monuments. But these people are spineless. And they're spineless because they certainly believe that the rhetorical attacks from the left are going to sink their campaigns. That's the issue. So I would say that these things like being called bad names is losing its effectiveness, but not for politicians. They don't think it's losing its effectiveness at all. They think, in fact, it's 100% effective. And you go out and look at what just happened a few days ago, as I'm recording this in Washington, D.C., with the protests there, and look at all the monuments that were desecrated. Lippincott is correct. The monuments are symbols of uh, the American tradition, and a tradition that has to be eradicated with year zero. And that's what the left really wants. These people are French revolutionaries. They are communist revolutionaries, and they want to start over. And this is where Hillary Clinton stands up. And nobody really says this anymore. But look, when Hillary Clinton called her political opponents deplorables, she dehumanized them. And that's exactly what the left wants to do. They want to dehumanize them. Or they want to animate statues. Because as I wrote for the Abbeville Institute on this issue, Robert E. Lee's melting was an execution. It was an execution. That was the whole point. And they said it. They couldn't really execute Robert E. Lee, but they did execute Robert E. Lee. So they animated these statues. And that's the thing. These statues are real to them. They are not just statues. They are symbols in their mind of real things. And when they attack these statues, what they really want to do is attack the real things. So Lippincott says the left is correct. Symbols have power. Yes. The destruction of a symbol, too, is an act of power. 
The statue of Lee that stood outside the University of Virginia and became a cultural war flashpoint during the Unite the Right rally in 2017 was not simply a Southern icon. The leftists announcing America's Confederate monuments as legacies of racism and slavery are perpetuating a vicious lie. In reality, these, symbols are, uh, these are symbols of national reunification and of the forgiveness that comes with peace. Well, he's correct about that. That's what these things did represent. Union, Union veterans were putting up monuments all over the North. It was to heal the wounds of the war. Look, you have your heroes. We have our heroes. But we're all going to get back together again. And the Spanish-American War was key for that. A reunification of America. The first war after the 1860s. And one of the really, I think, symbolic things that happened in that war was James Harrison Wilson going into Columbus, Georgia after the war in 1898 and recruiting Southerners to fight in the Spanish-American War. Now, why would that be interesting? Because James Harrison Wilson burnt the city. He burnt Columbus, Georgia. But he goes back to Columbus, Georgia and says, look, I need you, the sons of these soldiers, to fight with me in Cuba. And they did it. They had buried the hatchet. And, of course, William McKinley saying, look, I need you all to go and join us in this. This is why he started thinking about having a Confederate section in Arlington Cemetery. McKinley was a Union veteran. He was literally shot at by Confederates. And you have these snowflakes that want to tear all this stuff down. If a man who was literally shot at can say, look, we need to heal the wounds of the war, I think these snowflakes can get over this stuff. But we live in a time when people can't see these things. And it's not really about having any kind of real pain from these monuments. They are symbols of what they don't like. And that's traditional American society. They want them to come down. Because if they come down, in their mind, they eradicate the problems of the old order. Now, maybe, maybe not. We know that when the symbols come down, nothing gets better in these areas. I mean, the uh, Lee statue came down in New Orleans. Is New Orleans a peaceful place, a more peaceful place? Has crime decreased? Has any of the infrastructure gotten any better? Has anything happened? No. It's all just as bad. But we don't have to worry about that statue anymore. It's stupidity on the highest level. But that's where we are. Because it's emotional. It's emotivism. All right, let me continue. The Confederate monuments were part of the American mythology that sprang out of the Civil War. That struggle had been, in the account of the post-war generations, a bloody tragedy from which the nation emerged, reunited and refined with a new purpose. This is where Lippincott opens himself to saying, well then, if this is true, then these things need to come down. The next sentence, and this is where I caution all these West Coast Straussians, all of these people, if you're going to make a statement like this, you might as well not write these pieces. Seriously. The next line. The Southern cause might have been unjust, but the Southern soldier was still courageous. All right. So, if the Southern cause was unjust, and the monuments themselves represent the Southern cause, which they do, well then they should come down. If the cause was unjust, then the monuments should come down. This is something that Stephen Dill Lee pointed out when he said we need to uh, 
when he was talking about you know, sons of Confederate veterans and the Confederate veterans. You need to understand that you need to advocate the cause. And the cause, of course, was self-determination. If self-determination was unjust, and what, what, they would, what the nuance of that would say, well, no, self-determination is not unjust, but your version of self-determination was unjust. Well, then they should all come down. If this is true, if the cause really was unjust, and this is what the establishment historians were running around telling you, you don't need Lippincott to say it. You've got every establishment historian in the United States saying this, the cause is unjust. So if that's true, if the cause was unjust, then the monument should come down. They shouldn't remain. On the other hand, you had someone like Booker T. Washington say we should put up monuments to the best of Southern characters, like Robert E. Lee or others. I mean, this is we need to we need to admire and remember these people. So maybe the cause wasn't unjust. Maybe they just lost. Oh, well, that would be lost cause mythology. <laughs> you see, these people are in a, they box themselves into a corner. They want to say the cause is unjust, but we should leave the monuments up. Well, it's just a very short move to the left to say the cause is unjust and we need to take the monuments down. If you're going to agree on the cause is unjust, then why should they stay? Now, Lippincott tries to make the case. Well, these things are still important because these people are good people. They're good soldiers. They're good Christian men. Good warriors. It doesn't matter. We can have monuments to other people that have those values. So why should we leave the Confederate monuments up? I mean, it, then if you get to this point where the cause is unjust, now you get to the, now you've opened the door to that. Okay, was the American War for Independence unjust? After all, these people owned slaves. You had every single state in the Union in 1776 as a slaveholding state, and the British in New York and Virginia had said the war was about slavery. This is the whole 1619 position. So were the founding fathers unjust? If they were unjust, if this is a war that wasn't really for the proposition nation that they said it was, if they didn't live up to those values in 1776, which they didn't, well, then their cause was unjust, and it needs to come down. After all, they did go out and steal Indian land. So was Abraham Lincoln unjust? I mean, gosh, he executed 38 Sioux warriors. Why, why was his cause just? What about Grant? What about Sheridan? They're out slaughtering Indians. Well, they were unjust, too. All of these people are unjust. Ben Franklin was unjust. George Washington was unjust. Thomas Jefferson was certainly unjust. Because they did things that were inconsistent with the things that they said publicly, like all men are created equal. They didn't really believe it. Well, this is true. They didn't really believe it in the way that the left says they did. So if all that happens, when you say the cause was unjust... You have now destroyed your entire position. If self-determination is unjust, then the entire American experiment is unjust. You see? Now, this is where Anton has written, he's saying, well, you know, Lincoln did say that a people anywhere have a right to revolution. And maybe in a Lincolnian world, we could see how that would be more acceptable for a Lincolnian kind of secession. That would be unjust, too. Lincoln said some pretty racist things. He's unjust. You see? So at the end of the day, when you open the door to the unjust charge, 
You've just, I mean, the rest of it doesn't even matter anymore. All he's doing there, in some ways, is virtue signaling. Well, I don't really believe the Southern cause was great, but we should still admire Robert E. Lee. Who's he trying to appeal to? Well, the West Coast Straussians. He wants to soften the blow. He doesn't want to come out and say, well, I think, you know, the South was right in their search for self-determination. Any people anywhere can, can have self-determination. They wrote a constitution. This was democratically done. We can disagree with the foundation of their society or their labor system, whatever it is, but they do have a right to self-determination. Lincoln was wrong in coercing the South back into the Union. That was a wrong move. It was dictatorial. It was destructive. And it shredded the Constitution. And from that point forward, we didn't have the original America because we got the 1868 Constitution. You see, all these things matter. So, that line is a real problem with this piece. But he continues, he was, after all, still an American, still a Christian, still a warrior. Well, oh, that doesn't matter. Well, an American? What kind of American? Well, he was a bad American because he had views that don't comport with 2023. He was a Christian. Well, that's a knock against him for the left. Christians are bad. Warriors? Who cares about that? That's just military rah-rah nothing. See, these arguments don't make any sense. Once you say that Lee was fighting for an unjust cause, which is what the entire left says, you've just destroyed all these arguments. And the figure of Robert E. Lee, the South found the epitome of strength and a noble symbol of dignity in the face of profound tragedy. The statue of Lee at Charlottesville was dedicated in 1924. Edward A. Alderman, the president of the University of Virginia, gave the dedication address. That speech is not available online, but an earlier address by Alderman, entitled The National Spirit, that he gave in 1911, on the occasion of George Washington's birthday to the Washington Association of New Jersey, is public. There, Alderman articulates the post-war consensus, North and South, regarding the memory of the war. Now, Alderman's a really interesting individual. Um, he was a pretty active academic. In fact, if you look at the, the two monumental uh, collections of works produced in the early 20th century, the South and the Building of the Nation series, and um, the title's escaping me, but the South and, South, and uh, South and Literature, I think it is. I can't remember the exact title. But Alderman was certainly involved in that kind of process in saying the South was important in the literary history of the United States and in the history of America. I mean, it was vital. Alderman was all for that because, again, this is a time period when people are thinking about the United States and we don't have any divisions anymore. We have no North, no South. We have America. And every section had its role in America. It wasn't just a Northern America. It wasn't just a Southern America. Everyone was part of this. That is gone. But the South really was, Virginia really was, the key to understanding America, not New England. And if you, if you advance a New England position, you're going to get to the left too. That's the problem. Lippincott said, The speech is worth reading in full, but I will dwell only on a few of the most relevant passages. Alderman begins by honoring the three great Americans he sees as symbols of the nation's greatness, George Washington, Robert E. Lee, and Abraham Lincoln. He argues that these three men gave the same distinction to America, as Pericles and Leonidas gave to Greece. He explains that one day the whole people, north and south and east and west, will see them as superlatively great men, 
Great moral fires burning on the level plane of our existence, giving light and warmth through our national conscience and to our national ideals. Alderman honors Washington as an, as an incarnate of the incarnation, I'm sorry, the very genius of integrity, Lincoln as the soul of democracy, and Lee as the epitome of duty and unselfish love and stainlessness of life. Alderman a Southerner reforges the sectional heroes of North and South as heroes of the whole, now a reunited nation. Lee is not, in Alderman's account, a traitor and racist who needed to be punished, but a hero of the nation and a patriot. Alderman can praise Lee as a national hero because for him the war was over. The South had been reintegrated into the Union. Part of that national reunification required the intentional assimilation of the South symbols into the nation's collective consciousness. A new and cohesive national mythology was needed to justify and explain the nation's reborn unity. Alderman, Alderman explicitly connects his monumental history of Lee to this national reunification and peace. Quote, In this hour of reunion, reconciliation, of absolute forgetfulness, of old strife, we can all see how in those five quiet years at Lexington, Lee symbolized and marked out the future for every Southern man as it has come to pass and bade us live in liberal and lofty fashion with hearts unspoiled by hate and eyes clear to see the needs of a new and mightier day in a new and mightier land. Now, this is typical reconciliation speak in the early 20th century. Alderman was actually a progressive. And he saw this. He said, all right, look, we're going to take all the heroes and we'll put them all together. That was, that was what would happen. The reconciliation was, all right, look, Southerners will accept Lincoln as being a quote-unquote hero of democracy, even though you can make a case he really wasn't. And... Northerners will accept Lee and Jackson and even Davis as tragic heroes that are worthy of emulation. They were just wrong and they lost. But once you open the door to wrong, why would you keep people that were wrong? You see, reconciliation is in some ways a problem. Lippincott is caught up in that. Well, this was a wrong, this is the, the cause was wrong. If it was wrong, why celebrating these people? He's trying to make a case for it. But 1911 was a long time ago. And America really has changed. It's changed because the Marxists, the cultural Marxists, the left, have just destroyed every vestige of the old order. I mean, this is true. So he says, war unleashes titanic human passions. Left to itself, every war by nature is a total war of annihilation. Every act of violence within a war is in itself the source of new recriminations and new violence. Without a peace treaty and the forgetting that comes with it, every war would go on forever until one side completely annihilated the other. A peace treaty bounds the terror and horror of war. The amnesty that comes with it, however, cannot bring true justice. In ordinary human life, every murderer must face judgment. Not so in a war bracketed by a peace treaty. To have peace, the victor chooses not to hunt down every enemy soldier and bring him to justice for killing the victor's own troops. If the victor were to choose the path of supposedly perfect justice, then the peace treaty would be meaningless. The war and violence would continue until every last enemy soldier had been killed or punished. There is little incentive for the enemy to surrender in a total war. Therefore, the conflict cannot end before extermination. In order for there to be peace without annihilation, human beings must abandon a commitment to perfect justice. They must accept the tragic dimension to life. In this world, we cannot have complete satisfaction. Whether we like it or not, we are beings bounded by mortality and our own fundamental neediness. The political utopian, however, refuses to accept reality. He cannot reconcile himself to the tragic dimension of life. 
A perfect world is possible if only we can rid ourselves of the manifestations of true evil that hold back the springing forth of true righteousness and goodness. Now, what he's doing here is interesting because if you believe someone like Henry Ward Beecher, well, this was a war of righteousness. This is the righteous cause. And if it was the righteous cause, and if all of these, look, the 1776 Commission Report, which is authored by Straussians, West Coast Straussians, makes the war into a righteous cause. If it was a righteous cause, then these monuments should not exist. This should be eradicated. If it was a war to save republicanism with a lowercase r and democracy, then none of this stuff should exist. In, you have, look, there was a book by a man named Forrest Neighbors, who is actually a, an okay fellow, but he's a West Coast Straussian, and he makes this case. The war, I mean, all these Confederate monuments should come down. These people were bad. You shouldn't have this stuff. He's a conservative. He says he's a conservative. You can't be a conservative if you start acting, advocating these positions, though, because you're just a soft leftist. That's all you are. So Lippincott goes on, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because of time. I could go on for another probably 20 minutes on this. But the fact is, if this is a war as he says it is, then you cannot operate from a position that the side was wrong to begin with. Because once you do that, and once you have a moral equivalency of wrong, and these people were, Southerners were described as devils, as subhuman. Look at popular culture. Abraham Lincoln, vampire slayer. Southerners aren't even human. They're deplorables. They have to be eliminated. The statues are symbolic of actual people. And look, Lippincott gets to that. He says this is this is a real turning point because now the statues do personify. I mean, they, they make a point of that. Everybody in America that has half a brain should be advocating keeping every monument left standing exactly where it is because it blocks this kind of dehumanization. And if you don't do it, well, the monuments can continue to come down. And what's going to be left when they have no... What, what's going to happen when they have no more monuments to slay? What's going to be happen when they have no school names to change or street names to change? What are they coming for next? They're going to go with Confederate monuments. Again, low-hanging fruit. But we've seen it with bird names. I mean, what do they come for next? Well, if all the symbols are gone, the symbols are manifestations of real people, what's next? That's a big question. Will they stop? I don't know. But the symbols have to remain because they are the hedge in this very nasty, unfortunately very nasty, culture war that we're facing in the future of America. All right. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.